You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. There's a lot you can do on your own, for sure. Like, again, we've seen it time and time again. You can figure a lot of this stuff out on your own. Um, But when we start talking about making these small investments in the early stages, those investments will help your business grow faster. At least that's the idea, right? So um, if you don't have the money right now to do it, that doesn't mean your business won't be successful, but it just may take longer to get there, especially if some of your talents, again, especially if you're a specialist where you're really good at doing one specific thing, but some of these other pieces are going to be foreign to you. Well, to learn how to do those competently, some of these other aspects of your business, then you just need to accept that it might take you a little longer to learn this stuff, to do it yourself. That was Parker Stevenson, musician turned corporate manager turned member of Evolved Finance, a bookkeeping, financial consulting, and business education company dedicated to helping online entrepreneurs create profitable and healthy businesses. Today we jam about using business financial awareness as a fuel for growth, including the mistakes entrepreneurs make with their money and some general guidelines for how to manage the money you do make. No matter where you are in your creative or entrepreneurial journey, your financial reports are telling you where and how your business or efforts might grow. We hope this episode helps you start listening more. If you like this episode, you may also like episode 78 with Kyle Durand and episode 163 with Jaquette Timmons. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. If you ask me to name the single biggest workplace time waster, I don't even have to think about it. The answer is email. In fact, a recent study found that almost 50% of the time that managers spend tending to their inboxes is spent on emails that should have never been sent to them or that didn't really need an answer in the first place. But what if you could just press a magic button and never see those time-wasting emails again? Well, that's exactly what SaneBox does. With just a few clicks, SaneBox automatically gets your email under control and filters out the messages that don't need your focus. And you don't even have to switch email apps because it works in concert with whichever email clients you already use. It also has some nifty features like the Sane Black Hole, where you can vanquish senders you never want to hear from again, and Sane Reminders for sending email reminders to your future self. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com slash giant today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash giant. I've used and loved SaneBox for years, and I think you will too. Parker, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. I am excited to have this conversation because I know a lot of creative folks and entrepreneurs and small business owners like talking about money and talking about the finances is not like the thing we wake up in the morning to do. A lot of a lot of them don't do, but it's the thing that can make such a difference between thriving as an entrepreneur and struggling and not being able to see your vision turn into reality. So thanks for having this talk. It's like when I bring on someone like Mike Vardy and we get to nerd out about productivity, we get to nerd out about some financial stuff here so that people can um, really come to grips with their financial stuff um, and get their business going. Yeah, absolutely, Charlie. Thank you for having me. And uh, this is what I do. This is what I love to talk about. So one of the reasons I I love talking to you, you know, or that I'm excited to talk to you is because you're not like the typical bookkeeper or accountant that started like, I'm going to be the sort of dot your I's and cross your T's, you know, what we might think of a bookkeeper or an accountant, you have a different background. So tell us about that background. So you so we know where you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually come from more of a creative background. I um, went through high school. I was a good student and all that good stuff through high school, but then I got the music bug. Um, I have family in the music industry. One of my cousins is a um, very successful um like metal and hard rock producer. And then I have another cousin who's a touring guitar player, fib, fiddle player, uh, plays with like people like Kelly Clarkson and Shania Twain. So like 
that whole side of my family, my dad's side is just, it's music. Like almost everyone that side of the family is a extraordinarily talented musician. And so I definitely grew up with that and I grew up playing guitar. And by the time I got to college, I went to school in LA. I'm like, I'm going to be a rock star. Like this is going to be my jam. I'm going to be a musician. Um, but I think there's probably part of me that was very, um, uh, maybe not conservative about it that, but maybe it was like, um, wanted a backup plan. So I got my degree in business, uh, while I was in school and we had a really good run playing in LA. I love my music time, but, um, being a band in LA, especially after the Napster stuff hit and the music industry changed so much, I was like, yeah, I think, um, I think I'm done here. So I ended up scrambling, uh, once the band broke up to go like, all right, I feel like I need a grown up job. I need to get my act together. Not realizing really how valuable my time was as, um, as a musician in LA, because I had to, I was essentially running my own business with four other guys. Uh, and I was, you know, playing in a band with a bunch of other really smart guys too. And, um, so by the time I got into the corporate world, I said, okay, well, what do I, what do I like other than music at the time it was golf. So I ended up getting into the golf industry and ended up working for, um, tailor made Adidas golf for almost five years. I had a really extraordinary experience there during those five years. I was able to move very quickly in the company and also learn a lot and work with a lot of amazing people. And after about five years of that, I also realized, you know what? I think I liked the entrepreneur part of being a musician. Um, and I liked the stability of working in the corporate world. So how can I kind of get involved in something where I get the best of both? And luckily, um, our best friends, Corey and Anna run a business called Evolve Finance. They had founded it. Um, Corey was telling me about the business and I said, dude, I think I can help you grow this. Like, I think we could really blow this business up. And sure enough, it seemed like a good idea at the time. As I think back at it, I go, dude, what a risky, crazy thing for both of us to do. Uh, but luckily our instincts were right and it worked out. And I've been working with Evolve Finance for almost four years now, helping, uh, essentially we're just helping online business owners, um, many of them being creative um, business owners, um, just manage the financial side of their business through bookkeeping and just some like kind of financial business coaching. Yeah. And just, so two things, listeners, Parker is totally one of our peeps, as you can as you can tell now, right? And two, um, in case you're curious, I have had I've gotten some really rave reviews about their work, which is actually how I found them, um, and so and how I found Parker. So, um, thanks thanks for sharing that. Now, you mentioned you learned some great lessons from um, from being a musician and from being in golf that I believe you now apply in your work. Can you sort of illuminate what those lessons are that that really show up, you know, every day in your work? Yeah. So I think the musician thing, there's a, there's a hustle right involved with starting your own business that there's a hustle in the corporate world, but it's not the same. It's a different feeling when you feel like I have to create the thing we're selling. I have to be the one networking. I'm the one that has to sell this. I'm the one that has to keep it operating. And I was a lead singer in the band. Um, our drummer at the time was also, he ended up being a lawyer. He was a really smart dude as well. So we were kind of like running this thing. And so I felt like I learned about the hustle. I learned about looking for opportunities, which as an entrepreneur, you have to like, the in my mind, the best entrepreneurs are the ones that see opportunities and then jump on them. Um, I know a lot of the times it's like we want to force like, oh, I have this idea and I'm going to force this into a business. And you're so focused on forcing that idea, you miss out on like, well, there could have been these other places you could have pivoted and the business maybe wouldn't have looked exactly how you would have imagined it it would be, but it turns into something successful and you now have a business that's making you money. And I think especially as an artist and as a musician, I learned both um, through experience and sometimes the hard ways, missing opportunities, because we're not, again, you're so focused on your art, your craft, your creativity. You maybe miss out on some of these chances that it's like, God, if I knew then what I know now, I'd probably still be playing music, just understanding the business side of things. But then going into the corporate world, I mean, that's where I learned, like I was working for Adidas. I, I by the end of my time at Adidas, I was managing a $50 million product category, which in the grand scheme of Adidas, it's still like a $50 million product category is tiny for them, but it's like you kind of get to the big leagues in terms of how do you operate a complex organization 
And that has just been massive for me because I came into Evolve Finance understanding the entrepreneur hustle, but I was immediately able to make an impact because I was able to talk to Corey, my business partner, and go, hey, man, here's some of the things that I think we can be doing to improve our brand, to improve our operational processes, and all the kind of like behind the scenes nitty gritty stuff that most people aren't going to see you doing in your business, but is pretty much the core of how a business operates and how it becomes successful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad you bring that out because so many creatives and entrepreneurs don't think about how to pull in their previous life into the business. And sometimes once you, once you make the corporate jump and the corporate jump is largely difficult because you, a lot of times you'll come from a, and it could be an academic jump as well, right? You come from a place where you know a whole hell of a lot about what you do, Mm -hmm. right? And you think that because you're at a certain status or a certain level of expertise in your corporate job, that you're going to be a rock star on the entrepreneurial side. And you find out very quickly that is not the case, right? Um, very true. Because you've come from a place where you've been a, you've been rewarded generally for being a specialist, right? Um, and then when you go into your own small business, you have to be a generalist. Um, yes. And there are different skill sets. And it's different when you're selling something that you create. Versus when you sell something that someone else has created, someone else made the shoes, right? Someone else does all that. You can sell those shoes, but when it's like your thing, all sorts of personal stuff comes in, right? Oh, and and it, I'm, it's actually really interesting you say this, and maybe this will be therapy for me, um, but I feel like I've always been a generalist, and I've always felt insecure that I never really um, specialized in anything. So even when I was in the band, I was the singer, um, I played guitar, I wrote the majority of our songs, but I also want to learn how to play drums. I want to learn how to play bass. I want to figure out how like, um, things worked in the studio. Like I wanted to know a lot about a bunch of different aspects of being in a band and same in the corporate world. I actually felt like I had a hard time picking what path did I want to go down? Did I want to go into marketing? Did I want to go into sales? Did I want to stay in merchandising? Like there was like this part where it's like, I feel like once I make my pick, I'm like stuck with it. But all of that, I felt like all of that experience and all that generalization has allowed me to come into the entrepreneur world doing really well. And I don't think that you have to be a generalist to be successful. We have lots of clients who are specialists and still make it work. But I think it's important to understand that about yourself as an entrepreneur so you can say, okay, my advantage is I'm going to be able to actually take care of a lot of stuff um, right off the bat but maybe I'm not going to be super, super good in any one of them versus like if you're really good at one thing, you go, okay, I just need to understand that I'm going to need to bring other experts in and other people in later on to help um, make up for some of my deficiencies. Exactly, exactly. And it, I mean, so there's the, you know, I'm stealing this from Seth as so often I do, right? And he, I think he stole it from Zig. Um, it's, you know, it's better to be a meaningful specific than a wandering generality, except yep. When being a generality is your thing, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Except what, so if you're going to be a generalist, be a really, really good generalist, right? Yes, I agree. Um, but that means exactly as you said, you've got to learn to let things go. So you got to know that, and you got to know that at a certain point, like you're not going to be the best marketer. You're going to need to hire someone or you're going to need to get some support. Like there's a certain degree to which you investing in becoming a direct response copywriter is not going to be worth the time because you're not going to be good at that. Right. And so the business structure, you have to build it differently so that your revenue structures will support you working with independent contractors or employees that can be the specialist to your generalist. And the other and the flip side is the same. It's true as well. Like if you're a specialist, if you're that hyper creative, you're just going to do your thing at a certain point. You got to accept that you're going to need if if once your business grows past that sort of hundred thousand you know six figure mark where you can manage it on your own once it scales past that you're going to need to hire a generalist and that generalist is not going to be specifically as good at any one thing <laughs> as you yeah. are because that's what you're hiring them for so your business manager or your online business manager your your executive assistant whatever that person might be they're going to be a generalist and any given one thing that they do is not going to be next level. But their ability to run a bunch of things at once is going to be the next level thing. That and you that's need. a huge, and that's a huge, um, like phase of a lot of the small businesses we work with is they go from like an entrepreneur doing really well, like 
putting everything together themselves and then the business gets to the high six figures, maybe low seven figure range and they're like, oh yeah, I need like an operations person to start taking all this off my hands. Again, they may not be an expert at the funnels, they may not be an expert um, at ads or whatever else it is that you have going on in your business or their business, but it's like all of a sudden they're rounding up the daily grind aspect of the business, which is just game changing from there. And then you start to look for specialists, I think after that, but it's like, you know, the small business, it's a hurricane every day, right? It's just like, there's so much going on to have one person come in, regardless of if you're a generalist, when the business gets big enough, you just need someone to start rounding that up and organizing a little more. So it's inevitable, regardless of which side of the spectrum you're on. And what's important about that and I'll just say it here because, and, and, you know, it bears out in the numbers is a lot of times, um, I was just talking to a client about this yesterday. A lot of times we want to hire someone and have them instantly start making a difference in the business, right? Like I hire them yeah. and then all of a sudden, whatever pain point that I had was solved. That's not the way it works, right? Um, what typically works, especially when you start talking about a generalist that's coming in, that's building structures, that's building systems, that's building processes, um, that's really making the chaos go away, right? It might take them six months to manage the chaos that, you, that you've created, right? To For a sure. place to where they can actually start making it run better, smarter, and amplify it. But it might take them that period of time. And so on the financial side of things, if you're hiring them thinking that I'm going to... Um, hire a chaos tamer. And then in two weeks, my business is going to be different. My revenue is going to change. Um, probably not the case, right? Probably not the case. And that's where things get super sticky. Yep, I agree. All right. So you mentioned opportunities, which is interesting because, you know, on the one hand, as an entrepreneur and small business owner, you can be so stuck in what you're doing that you don't see new opportunities, you don't see new revenue streams, right? Um, and that can be a major problem. I think what I experience more is people see too many opportunities and too many revenue streams and they try to chase them all. Um, now you've seen it on the number side of things. I've seen it on the number side of things, but I think you've seen it deeper. What are some of the challenges when you see, when you try to create too many revenue streams at once or when you're trying to like seize every opportunity rather than focusing on fewer? That is, such a freaking good question. Um, and, and the the reason I think that's so good is I think for most entrepreneurs, and again, a lot of the clients we work with, they didn't like necessarily have a business background. So there's a lot of them have success using their instinct. And I think the one instinct we all have is like, well, I have one revenue stream. Well, what would my business look like if I had two revenue streams? Oh man, and then I have this third thing I can do. Well, the business is only going to do better. But the easiest way I can kind of explain this financially is um, if your business, your business has like two batteries, one is run on money and one is run on your time or your team's time. And one revenue stream is going to suck a certain amount of money battery and a certain amount of time battery to the point where you might not have a whole lot of left, battery left to really focus in the way you need to on another revenue stream. So what happens is as, especially in the early stages, when you're trying to figure out like what's really sticking, like what offer that you have is really going to stick. Sometimes you do need to experiment with a few different revenue streams or a few different offers or products or services to really figure out what does my audience want. But where you get into trouble is where you go, well, this is kind of working. And you then you launch something else and go, well, this is kind of working. And you have quite a few things that are all kind of working, but none of them is, none of them are really killing it for you. Well, now your time, your mark, you know, the time you're spending on your marketing, the money you're spending on your marketing and sales is now being spread out across various revenue streams. So you're not really maximizing the time and money you have in your business towards one, one revenue stream and getting a really good return on your investment there. Again, and when I say investment, it's time and money. Mm -hmm. And what happens is when our clients start to realize what their main money maker is and they get focused on that. So their time, their team's time and their money is going towards one or maybe two really main offers, their businesses explode. And that's just because you literally only have so much time and money, especially in the early stages of your business, to really grow one part of your business, to grow one revenue stream. No one here is running Apple. No one here is running Google, where you have 
just an exorbitant amount of cash to spend on all kinds of ventures and ideas and things. It's like, we're all small business owners here. We have to be really smart about where we're investing both our time and money. Absolutely. And I mean, when I'm working with clients and I think I've written about this somewhere, I've talked about it. Um, the, it's the, what seems to be the paradox of expansion by contraction, right? When you contract your service offerings, when you contract your product offerings, what you inevitably see is people start expanding their business, right? Yes, of course. Right. And so it's, it's the name of the game. And from a strategic point of view, we often fail to think about the fact that the next thing that we offer in the business needs to be at least as profitable as the last thing that we did. Sure. Otherwise, we should keep doing more of the last thing, right? We don't want to do something else that's making our business less money. The problem is, is when you've got 17 different things running all over the place, it's really hard to do the business analysis because though, um, to use your metaphor, though you have these two different batteries, there's so much cross use of the juice, you know, between the two that you don't know whether that hour that you spent in general marketing went for, went for these three things or whether it went for those three things. And so it's super yes. hard to audit where your time and energy is going um, until you start contracting and looking at it and saying, you know what, like we spend a dollar here on this type of thing, we get $4 back. Okay, great. We spend a dollar here and we make 50 cents. Wait a second, why are we doing that, right? And part of it is, I, I think what I've experienced on, on sort of the strategic side, both in my own business and working with clients is there's a humility and letting the numbers tell you, like really paying attention to the numbers. Because a lot of times that thing that you most want to be successful may not be the thing that's profitable, may not be the thing exactly. that's going to like, you know, actually make you money and keep your team on board, so on and so forth. So you keep trying to invest in that thing to make it the thing, as opposed to listening to, you know, the last two quarters P&Ls that are telling you this thing is not making you any money. Absolutely. And it's, well, and it's interesting because we are talking with our clients about their their numbers, it's like we had we had one client that was just like our just perfect example of this. And we would look at her like the income portion of her her profit and loss statement. And, and for those that aren't familiar with it, your profit and loss statement is just like that financial report that shows how much money you brought in, how much money you spent in various expenses, and how much profit you had left over. Like it's just a basic report um, that shows you the financial health of your business. And so for our clients that we're able to do it with, we'll separate the income portion by all their products and all their revenue streams. And there was just this long list of revenue streams and you talk to her and she's obviously stressed. Like she feels like she's hustling, trying to jump on every single opportunity that she can find. And she's not having a whole lot of fun running her business. Um, now we can't take full credit for this because we brought it to her attention, but then she started working with, um, kind of a well-known business coach in the industry. And he got her focused on, like he was able to help her figure out what the main revenue driver was going to be for her. She like invested money and time into that one revenue stream. And she now has a seven figure business that's primarily operating off of the one main revenue stream that was only providing a portion of their revenue. And now it's like, the majority of her revenue. She's built a whole business around this one offering. And that's what I think um, a lot of new entrepreneurs don't always realize is how much freaking money you can make off of one thing. One thing. You doesn't have to be a million things. And granted, there might be a few business models out there um, that there might be a little bit of an exception there. But for the vast majority of people running lifestyle, creative, run from home type businesses, you can easily put, or not easily, I don't want to say it's easy to do, but from a number standpoint, if you have a good offer, you can easily create a half a million dollar business off of one thing. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm glad you put that out there. We're largely, um, I'm going to say a range, Parker, you might disagree with the range of revenue that I'm talking about, we're, but we're largely talking about businesses under the 10 million range, right? Above the 10 million range, things get different, right? I they, totally agree. Right. But under that range, and that seems really, that may seem really low for some folks, that may seem really high for some folks, but it's really just a matter of how many available customers that you have in a given market segment. And there's a lot awesome. of room in one segment that people don't realize when you get, you know, good for your, um, your corner of the universe, right? If you can be that one thing for that corner of the universe, it's bigger than you think it is, right? It's almost always bigger than you think it is, especially- Absolutely when you start thinking about advertising through Facebook and Google and LinkedIn and Twitter and all the different advertising channels that we have now in 2018, 
that a lot of the stuff you may be reading online did not really exist in a, de- in a degree of maturity that like back in 2013, right? There's, it's just easier to find your niche, right? It's just so much easier to find your audience. Yeah, it's so much easier in the sense where, you know, and this gets tricky on the financial side, right? Because on the one hand, you can invest, say, $2,000 to get an ads person. Um, to help you figure out with with an offer what size of the market and so on and so forth. You might lose that $2,000, right? It might be a complete loss, except for you might not spend three years trying to build into an audience, right? Not knowing that whether it exists or three years doing something and doing one strategic option because you don't believe there's an audience there when there clearly is an audience um, that you can serve. Hold. Well, and yeah, and that's so, and that's kind of like brings to mind essentially the two different strategies around this, right? Like you can put a little bit of money up front to find the audience and see if they actually want what it is that you're offering to see if what your offer is really does meet the need that you're trying to fill. Or you go the other direction where, and and this is maybe a little more revolved around content creators and um, things of that nature where you're doing blogs, you're doing podcasts, you're doing videos, and you're getting uh, people to consume content from you. And then you figure out what they want. Then you just go, okay, I'm just going to create something for this audience that they want to buy from me. And it's that's more of like a newer online internet kind of business model. But neither one of those models are wrong. It's just some have more risk um, upfront for time. Some has more risk upfront for money, but either way, the risk is pretty minimal compared to like, if you're trying to launch a business 20, 30 years ago and you're trying to do, I don't know what, I mean, whatever it is that you want to do, number one, it'd be harder to find your audience and see who would want to buy it. But you'd have to usually put so much more money up front into it, having no idea really if it was going to work. And I'm sure you've talked about this, Charlie, but there's just so many ways to test out ideas now and really see if it's something that can stick in such a relatively inexpensive way. Yeah. What the caveat that I'll add in there, and and this is a a thing I've been going on about for like at least the last nine months is I want content creators to drop the word free in front of free content because it's not free. Someone creates it, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's time that you have created to create content. And the only reason I say that is because people are like, well, I don't want to invest this amount of money. I don't want to invest, you know, to go that route. I think I'd rather create like a bunch of content and I'd rather do that for six to nine months without realizing the amount of time that they're spending doing that. That's operational time that either you're paying for because you're not getting paid or someone yeah. is paying for that. And so there's an opportunity cost there. Yeah, there's there's a dollar or there's a soft cost. That's my point. Soft cost or real cost. Your time in the business of creating things is is quantifiable. If you think that your your salary or your pay rate is, you know, thirty dollars an hour. You spend six hours writing a blog post. You have spent $180 based upon those calculations, right? Yep. Now, you want to do that you know, one time a week for six months. Parker's probably better at math, but you can get the point that all of a sudden, you've already spent $3,000, $4,000 right, in creating content where you may have been able to validate that earlier by spending $500 of real cash to get, that same, to, get to that same point. Absolutely. And that's, and those are the two, and it's great to have both of those options in today's day and age, because again, some people are starting businesses with zero money. And a lot of our clients started off with nothing and built very successful businesses, but you're right. Like if you have, there's just an advantage to having some money to experiment with upfront to get those, to test those little experiments and get the feedback quicker. Yeah. Now, I mean, the trick is, you know, we're in small business, as you mentioned, um, we don't have, most of us are not starting with sort of that tech startup idea of a runway where we've got a hundred thousand dollars to figure out our business model, right. Yep. And make some money. That's like 1% of businesses, right? The rest of us don't have that sort of thing. We've got like $0 or we're starting from very like credit cards, right? We might have $6,000 where that's what we can invest in the business. And we got to like, you know, um, we've got to eat what we farm in that way. Yep. I'm not going to say we got to eat what we kill because I don't like it. But um, <laughs> at a certain point though, you have to, or the idea is, I'm not saying you have to, there is an option of investing money to grow or investing in certain places in your business of money that you may or may not have. You may not have that cash, right? Um, so there, there's some different choices to be made, but aside from where you get the capital, whether, whether it's debt, whether it's, you know, savings, wherever, what are some of the areas that you've seen people invest in, um, earlier on in their business that really provides a really good bang for the buck? So, um, 
granted, by the time most businesses come to work with us, they're already making six figures. So we don't usually see the early stages, but we've talked to our clients so much. We have a pretty darn good idea of kind of where they, where they start and how a business of uh, kind of evolves over time. So, you know, one of the first places, I mean, it's just inevitable. You're going to have to put money into is your website and your software. Like it's just, you're going to be online that you would need that at a minimum, even if you're trying to do it on a shoestring budget. Again, we're talking about the difference between spending maybe, um, a few hundred bucks in the start to get things going versus like, if you had wanted to start a retail store back in the day, you'd have to put a hundred grand up front right off the bat. So it's all relative, but you know, the software and the website is like the first place you need to go. Once you have that, you can do a lot on your own. Now, if you are maybe, um, let's say you create stuff on Etsy, then it's going to be a little bit of a different story, right? You're going to need to invest in your, um, just your raw goods or your raw materials to create whatever it is you're creating. So if you're uh, knitting stuff or you're painting things or you're doing woodworking, like obviously you need tools, materials and all that to create that stuff. Not as many of our clients do that, but chances are if that's all, if that's something you're good at, you probably have some of that stuff already. Mm -hmm. But then once you go from there, then it's like, you can really grow the business a lot just through your, you know, just through your website, using your online software to really leverage, um, automation and do a lot of the nitty gritty work for you in the beginning. But then from there, you're eventually going to need to start hiring labor. And so the labor piece is like the next like big part. Now, some, depending on your business models, some people might be able to start to, uh, invest heavily into advertising sooner than others, but typically you're going to like need labor in the terms of like, you need an accountant, you might need a bookkeeper, you might need a virtual assistant, you might need, um, a Facebook ad manager, you might need, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, the, again, the web designer, you know, there's a multitude of kind of like project type contractors you're going to need to invest in probably pretty early, but outside of the project stuff, um, you might start investing in ads and then the ads might bring more business in. And then you might start actually hiring employees or like or contractors that are going to be more involved in your business. And that's like it, like those are the main places when we're looking at our businesses, P and L's, it's like, are we, what are we spending on our labor and what are we spending on our, um, marketing and promotional activities? And for the most part, it's balancing that stuff. It's not always that clear cut, but those are the two areas we're always going to be looking at. And it's pretty much the stuff as a new entrepreneur, you need to be thinking about and looking at from the very start, because the only thing that changes is just the size of the numbers, but the ratios, the percentages of how much you're spending of your revenue into labor and into your marketing costs. That's the only thing that changes is just what those ratios look like and the dollar amount, but they're still important regardless of if you're new or if you're established and, you know, have a healthy business already. Yeah. I'm going to slide this one in real quick when we start talking about websites, because one thing that I, one mistake that I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs do is over invest in their website too early. Oh, man, for sure. Right. And so if you're just starting a business and I know some of my colleagues, especially those who have web dev shops, are not going to like this. Like, don't go out and spend 10K for your first design. Don't do it, right? Because you don't really know what your business is. You don't really know what your brand is. I'll talk a little bit about this in my book, The Small Business Lifecycle, but that's a place where to really overinvest. I'd way rather you to have a lower investment there. And what I've seen to be a far better use of your dollar is actually copywriting, right? Yeah. Not, not website design, but copywriting, because copywriters who know what they're doing can actually speak to your market or get what you do to get what we call product market fit, right? So, to get that language. And at a certain point, you can make the best stuff in the world, but if you can't get people, if you can't create marketing and copy uh, material assets that resonate with them, they're not going to buy it. You don't, they don't buy it. You don't have revenue. You don't have revenue. You can't grow. Right. And yeah, so I agree. Um, and so I, at this point in state in, in the game, I'm, I'm encouraging people to invest in copy sooner. There's a great company called snap copy. It's a plug there where they can do on demand copywriting. So you don't have to necessarily pay $4,000 to have someone do something. You can pay $200 to have them tweak your opt, your opt in copy and things like that. I know that's getting very detailed, but, um, think about how you're going to spend those dollars on copywriting um, and not just copy editing. There's a big difference folks, right? Uh, but between people who can create sales pages and um, persuasive um, and oh, what is it called? Um, lead generation copy and things like that, right? So go there, it will help out. And the investment, the long-term, the long-term reward from that is going to be really, really high. So I, 
I just to just to um, piggyback on that a little bit. Some of our clients with the most successful businesses are the ones um, that are good copywriters. Like it's kind of the hidden secret. Um, but we have, there's one client who's kind of become a friend over the years and she just like makes the copy look so easy and it speaks to her audience so well that, so if you don't, if you're not interested in developing that talent yourself, or if it's just not in your wheelhouse at all, that's fine. But I think you're absolutely right. Getting someone to help you with that is pretty crucial for the early stages of any business. Yeah. Um, and the sooner you do it and like, again, it goes, it's so hard because I was thinking about this with a, you know, cause I was explaining something to a reader and I had to go back 10 years ago and what it felt like to invest $300 or $500 and to get some support and, and like a marketing consultant and things like that. And it felt so big. And so I know when we're talking about spending 500 or $2,000, that can seem like a lot. And it is a lot. We're talking, you know, multiple months of car payments and things like that. However, what I want you to keep in mind from a business perspective is it, if you can do something like that, that is going to be a long-term evergreen asset that brings you in money. It's different than just paying for a car, which is a sunk would not a sunk cost. It's a depreciating asset, right? That's not going to make you money, right? Yep. Your website, if that's the route you're going, right? Um, every landing page that you create, every sales page that you create, its job is to get someone to buy that thing. If working with someone gets them to buy it more, that's a really, really good investment early on that will never actually depreciate in value in that same way. So, and, and that, that's also a really good point. There, there's a lot you can do on your own for sure. Like, again, we've seen it time and time again, you can figure a lot of this stuff out on your own. Um, but when we start talking about making these small investments in the early stages, um, those investments will help your business grow faster. At least that's the idea, right? So, um, if you don't have the money right now to do it, that doesn't mean your business won't be successful, but it just may take longer to get there, especially if some of your talents, again, especially if you're a specialist where you're really good at doing one specific thing, but some of these other pieces are going to be foreign to you. Well, to learn how to do those competently, some of these other aspects of your business, then you just need to accept that it might take you a little longer to learn this stuff, to do it yourself. So that's where, you know, you can still make it happen, but those investments are really about getting your business to grow faster. Cause you're right. Like if you can get that copywriter in sooner than later, how much extra revenue is that going to be in the long run? Because now all of a sudden your website's actually converting or your customers are actually starting to understand what you're doing and you're making those sales now instead of having to struggle for two years to get it to finally the place that your copywriter could do now. Again, there's no guarantee about any of that, but that's the name of the game is trying to make smart investments in your business. That's going to accelerate its growth and accelerate its ability to increase, you know, to generate revenue. Yeah. So, I mean, here's sort of the faulty thinking on that, right? Because you mentioned there's no guarantee. Somehow we often think that, well, if I work on it for two years, then it's going to work. <laughs> that's definitely not true. That's definitely not true as well, right? And so it's it's one of those things, and uh, listeners will probably have heard me talk about this, but a lot of times when you're assessing strategic opportunities, what we do is we compare the good points of our current decision against the bad points of a, of a different decision, right? So we're comparing like, oh, I'm going to be great here. This is a great decision. Here are all the bad things that can happen with this other decision. So it's clearly better for me to keep doing what we're doing. A way better way to make decisions is to say, okay, with my current decision, what are all the good things and what are all the bad things? What are all the advantages? What are all the disadvantages? Now, with every other option I'm consuming or that I'm considering, what are the good? What are the good? What are the advantages over here? And what are the disadvantages? And you compare the strongest advantages against the strongest advantages, and you compare the, the weakest, the strongest weaknesses against all the weaknesses, and you end up making better decisions. And you actually get to this point where we said multiple times of opportunity cost. But as long as you're saying, if I do it it's going to work. And if I pay someone else, it might not work. Well, that's a really faulty way of thinking because the reality is often that if you do it, it might not work just as much as it might not work if you pay somebody else. So yeah. then we start having conversations of how much is a worth is a month of business growth worth to you. And I know that sounds like what, you know, a salesperson or a business coach might say, but that's true. Like if you spend six months to get to a certain point, that has time cost to it. If we can get you there in one month, that has cost and time through it as well. How much, what's the difference between that five months? Am I making any sense here, Parker? Yeah, no, it, make, it makes total sense. I mean, the name of the game is cash flow. 
Uh, your business is a money machine. And if that machine isn't generating revenue, then it's just spitting out cash. And the, you know, regardless of how altruistic your endeavors are, how creative and cool or how much you believe in your endeavors, um, it's still a money machine. That's what business is. That's what running a business is. So the sooner you can get that machine generating cash, even if that means we have to put some cash in it to begin with, um, it's just the the game changes once you have revenue coming in. Like that's like the the stages of running a business, right? Is you're doing all this work up front, spending all this money up front to try to get something going. But once you start getting revenue and it's actually like consistent revenue, all of a sudden you have options and all of a sudden you have opportunities. And now you're starting to make different decisions that you just didn't have the luxury of making before you were making revenue. So everything you're saying, Charlie, about getting that revenue stream going sooner than later, growing that revenue faster than slower. I mean, it's just, that's the ultimate goal. Like it's just, that's the smart, logical thing to do when you're running a money machine. Yeah. Well, and I think there's an adjective in front of what Parker and I are saying when it comes to um, revenue, there's a silent adjective and I call it relevant revenue because you can make revenue of like a hundred bucks here and there. Right. But when you start making relevant revenue, which is some, um, some evaluation between what you need to pay yourself, what you actually need to live and how much your business is making. So relevant revenue for some smaller businesses might be $3,000 a month, right? That might be really relevant money. Whereas if you need $10 million to keep your business going, that's not really relevant revenue, right? Um, In a lot of ways, right? Um, And so you have to relevant revenue scales with your expenses and your sort of cost and what you need to pay yourself. So, um, so I think that's what we're saying because once you start making revenue above what you need to pay yourself, once you start making relevant, um, revenue that can like pay your mortgage, so on and so forth, it becomes a real thing. Whereas I understand making $17 from Amazon affiliates, right? That's not, it's revenue true, but it's not really relevant in a way that's going to motivate you that you're going to be able to see what's going to work. And and you mentioned, you've mentioned margins, or excuse me, you've mentioned um, ratios, and now you've mentioned paying yourself. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask a question in two different ways. Um, From the work that you've seen with your clients, what are some good baselines of ratios that you might think about looking at, um, you know, how much you're paying for labor, how much you're paying for taxes, how much you're paying for those? Like if you can say, you know, if you're paying more than 30% on X, it's probably too much. Um, yeah. Do you have any sort of baselines that you can provide for us? Yeah. So the one caveat here before I explain this a little bit is your your ratios. And when I say ratios, it's, it's the percentage of your revenue that you're spending on a certain expense. So if your business is making $1,000 a month and you're spending 20% of that money on your like a virtual assistant, then you're paying them $200 a month. So out of the thousand dollars, 200 is going to your virtual assistant expense. So that's 20%. So the caveat there is if you're trying to grow aggressively, like let's say you just feel like, Oh, I have this huge opportunity to generate a lot of revenue and I'm going to hire more people right off the bat. Then temporarily your labor costs might just be a really hard, high percentage until your revenue kind of catches up and you start to really make a return on all the money you're investing on your team team to support this new revenue. But for a stable business, um, we like to see labor at around 20%, um, depending on if it's more of a service-based business, then we could see it getting to 30 or 35% um, and still being healthy. But if you're selling digital products and things like that, I mean, it's just, you can, you could run a very healthy six figure business with very little help in the beginning and have like 50, 60% profit margin, which means your team might only cost you five, 10% of your total revenue every month. So I want to say that it will depend on your business model a little bit, but for most online businesses, you know, you should be in that 20 to 30% range for your whole team, whether they're employees or contractors. Now, when it comes to like advertising costs, um, as long as we're making a positive ROI on the spend, I don't really care how much they're spending. Uh, and we see businesses spending tens of thousands of dollars 
uh, a month and hundreds of thousands and even some of the millions of dollars a year on things like Facebook ads. And even though those numbers look really scary, it's like, well, we know we're getting a return on them. Otherwise, our clients wouldn't still be in business paying us money. So for those ratios, I think it's not necessarily how much money you're spending on advertising relative to your income. It's more how much are we getting for every dollar that you spend? If you're spending a dollar on advertising and you're getting a buck 50 back, we're getting 50 cents in profit, which is great. It's not a lot, but as long as we're making money, then it's worth that, that investment. Um, but ideally, you know, a lot of the clients we're working with on Facebook, they're striving for like two to three X their, their Facebook spend. So if they're spending a buck, they're hoping they're going to get two to three dollars back on that investment. So those are kind of the key places. Now, the profit margin is really what we, we're looking at the most because again, we're looking at lifestyle businesses here. If you're trying to do a startup deal, a startup's just a different beast, it's right? Because totally we're, get, yeah. we're, we're getting investors coming from outside and we're trying to grow the business as fast as possible. So you may not have any margin. You're just, you know, trying to keep your revenue growing and keep your customer base growing. But when you're running a small business, a lifestyle business, the profit is everything because that's going to decide whether or not you're going to actually get paid. So again, just to give everyone here a reference, you know, we have some of these, uh, these businesses, coaching businesses, people selling digital products, um, that are, you know, they're making 50 to 60% margin on their businesses. You know, they could have a million dollar business and keep 500 grand for themselves, or they could have a $200,000 business and keep a hundred grand for themselves. Like it's totally doable. Um, but again, it just depends on how quickly you're trying to grow and how quickly you're trying to invest. So if, if a business is investing a little more heavily, then if they're at 30 or 35% margin, we're still, we're still very comfortable with that. Um, as soon as they start to drop down to 25 to 20% margin, then we either need to have a good understanding of what we're investing in and where that investment is going to pay off. Like how long down the road will it pay off? Or if they just have a business model where it's like, yeah, but we're doing $5 million a year in revenue. So 20% of that is uh, still a really good amount of profit from a dollar standpoint, the 20 or 25% percentage may not sound good to us, but if you're still making a million or $2 million a year or something like that and profit dollars, then it's like, okay, that's fine. We're going to be okay with 20% profit margin because the owner is essentially keeping a million bucks. So it's, you know, I know the ratios, I'm kind of floating around some ratios here. They're not always super exact. Again, it's really dependent on your situation, but for most of the listeners here, as your business starts to grow, there's really no reason you shouldn't have a business that's generating 30 to 50% profit unless you're really focusing on physical products, which is a little bit of a different beast there, but that's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down. Yeah. And I would put a caveat here. Once you start reaching like that $300,000 speed bump where you start, have to really start investing in folks and systems and, and, and things like that, those profit margins are going to change or, or those, those are going to change because it, I mean, you're, as you mentioned earlier, um, growing teams eat cash. They just do, right? And so um, there, there's a period of time there, but you have to be careful because it's easy to stay at that plateau burning cash and not actually breaking through. Um, and that's really it, it, you know, an advanced topic we can't go into too much right now. But just be, be advised largely if we're talking about what we're what he's calling lifestyle business, I'd say a bootstrapped small business as well, where you're 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 not investing a lot of cash in, but you're wanting it to be a cash engine, then those are really good margins to to be looking at there. And, and let me just give you two quick examples here. The two things we typically see is if a business is selling digital products or something like that, where there's no extra cost of good associated with selling another product, like for each unit they sell, there's no real extra expense other than merchant fees. So when, and when that's the case, they may have a big launch, right? They may have like this launch and all of a sudden they did like a hundred thousand dollars, you know, in one month. Well, then it's like, you have this cash, you're overwhelmed, but you have the cash available to start hiring people versus like with how we work at Evolve Finance, we're a service-based business. So as we grow, it's like, we know like we kind of get to our capacity. Our team is all kind of like working their butts off. We're all kind of got full schedules and it's like, all right, it's time to hire a person, but it's like, we don't just have this huge influx of cash ready to do it. So we have to lower our margins, right? Cause we, again, Corey and I are very, uh, shockingly conservative and we want to be saving a certain amount of money in the business and stuff like that specifically to be ready to hire people down the road. But like, let's say we would normally have $5,000 a month in profit 
after everyone's paid, well, now we hire a new person. We may only have a, a couple grand left over or something like that. That's just an example to give you where it's like margins will get tight, but we're, we're doing that knowing that by bringing this new person on, it all of a sudden opens up our capacity to bring on more business. So those are kind of the two situations and you just kind of have to know your own business model to know which type of situation you're probably going to get yourself into. And this goes back to what we were talking about with different revenue streams, because so many businesses are actually hybrid businesses that have both a, a scalable arm and a service arm. Yeah, right? for sure. And, and so here's where it can get super sticky because you have to know how to manage a service-based business and the dynamics, the cash flow dynamics of that at the same time that you have to know how to manage a, um, you know, product-based or a scalable business in that side of things. And there are, at least in my experience, work in our own business and working with other people, there are actually two different kinds of beasts, right? Um, when, you, when you think about that. So when you start thinking about like your profit margins, like he's saying, you know, wow, you know, 30% or whatever that is, that is for a product-based business, right? That may have a certain type of scale as opposed to a service-based business that has a different type of scale and different type of dynamics. And if you've got a hybrid business that has both, then you need to understand the dynamics of both kinds and how they converge with each other, which makes it complex, but not extraordinarily so, right? It's just, you have to pay attention to some of the numbers and some of the details. I'm curious, um, you mentioned the case of needing to hire more people. And a common question that comes up for entrepreneurs and small business over small business owners is how much money do I need to have set aside to know that I can hire that next person? Now that's going to range, but if you can give us a a percentage or a factor, you need to have four times their, their monthly burn, something like that to, to give a helpful helpful guide. What would you say on that particular question? I don't think I have a, an exact number on that because a lot of the times it's not necessarily how much money you have saved up. It's more like what's the leftover profit every month? Like what are your – so essentially we look at a lot of our businesses as like we usually have an average amount of revenue we're generating across the year because especially with a more launch-based business model, you have really big months and then the months might have some smaller months and those smaller months are totally natural. It's just part of a launch-based strategy. And when you're in that kind of situation, um, you're kind of looking at what's your average monthly expenses. And if our average monthly expenses are just dramatically less than the amount of revenue we're making, again, we have so much profit margin that it's not an issue to hire someone, then it's like, yeah, let's hire this person. We know our next launch can essentially pay for their whole year's worth of salary. When you're in more of a service-based business, well, then you're typically going to be seeing like more consistent margin every month. Um, and when you see that consistent margin, again, in the example I just said, like maybe you have $5,000 extra every month and you need to hire a person at three grand a month, at least to start them off at, then you just go, okay, like I need this person in order to grow the business. So I'm willing to take that hit on our margin. Um, but the big thing that we're always talking to our clients about, especially with these high margin businesses where it's like all of a sudden your business can take off like, like in a year and all of a sudden you're just looking to hire people to take workload off of you. Um, we're always trying to, we always try to be careful with that because we do want to free up the owner to focus on revenue generating activities and not doing like nitty gritty stuff. That's easy to, to hire out or to have someone else do, but we really like to think about, is this person, like you have to be really honest with yourself, the person I'm hiring, will they really be freeing me up to generate more revenue or are they going to generate revenue for me? You still need to be thinking more like, not necessarily what do you have enough savings or percentage of your business because you may not have very much savings, but if someone's gonna come in and they're gonna grow your revenue right away, it's like putting money into an ad. You're like, well, I'm gonna give you a hundred bucks and you're gonna give me 200 bucks back. Well then, yeah, let's do this. I'll give you my last hundred dollars in order to do that. And so I think you just have to be realistic about like, we can't fulfill orders if we don't hire this person. Well, then you figure it out. Like you hire that person in order to make sure you can fulfill your orders or take on more clients or reach your larger audience or whatever it may be. So I think that those types of situations aren't always super clear. It may not always be super obvious. So again, I think what I would ask your audience as they're trying to hire people, again, is that are they going to free you up so you can generate more revenue yourself, so you can do more webinars, so you can create more products, so you can uh, be interacting in your community more and networking more, 
Or are they like a salesperson, a marketing person, someone who's like, dude, I'm going to change your website with the copy and you're going to increase your conversions by 20%. And then, you know, that pays for themselves. So I think it's more just thinking about what's the return you're going to get on that labor. Because if you feel like there's a really good chance you're going to get a return on it, then find the money and figure it out. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. My sort of caveat on that is just asking the question, can you bear three months of their um, salary or expense? Um, before they start turning a turning profit or, or saving you time, because when you sure. look at onboarding someone, like it's not as we mentioned, it's generally not going to be instant. Now, if you're in the order fulfillment sort of thing, you got more people buying, like you got money on the front side, and you need help to to help deliver against things you're sold. That's that's a different scenario. But largely, I, I think a lot of people are on the other side to where they're like, I need to hire someone to help me make more money. Right. And in that scenario, um, whether or not we're talking about margins or whether or not we're talking about coming out of savings or going into debt, whatever their monthly amount is, can you bear that for three months before they start generating the money? And that's being conservative because um, they may not, you know, they may come in and, and just start kicking butt early. And that's great. But it might take them a little bit to really make that difference in your business. And you've got to be able to afford that. And I would... I would question if hiring the, if, if you have all these orders coming in or, um, you, or even if you're a service-based business and you think they're going to help you bring in more money down the road, if you can't afford them now, then I would question how much efficiency we're getting out of you as the owner generating revenue. I know there's probably some very specific situations where we could find examples of what you're talking about, but if you need to hire someone and you can't afford to do it yet, um, especially someone who's going to be working in the business on a daily basis. I'm not talking about, you know, making a one-time investment in your website or, um, copywriting, like again, a project type thing. But if you're trying to get someone involved in your business every single month or every single week or every single day, then I would question what, where's there a hole in terms of the amount of return we're getting on the owner's time. And are we, you know, are we pricing our products properly? Maybe we're not making enough money off the product. Is the owner not converting well enough on webinars? Like there's just so many different factors that could be involved in that. But I think when you're in a small business and you start to break into the six figure range, uh, unless the owner's just taking too much profit out of the business to pay themselves, which is a whole nother conversation, and it's not leaving enough money left over to hire people, that's typically going to be more the issue than a business that's thriving and then it's like, yeah, man, we can hire someone, let's do this. Like we got the money to do it. I may be taking less of a bonus this year, but it's like, let's do this because in the long run, it's gonna be better. Most small businesses shouldn't run into cash flow issues like that because otherwise there's an issue with the business model overall, like your business model is just broken and we're not making enough money for the amount of money we have to spend. Or like I said, your personal finances are putting a, um, uh, putting undue stress on your business to pay you and not leaving enough money left over to invest back in the business and help it grow. Does that make sense? It does make sense. You know, I'm looking at time and this is clearly something we could talk about for a long time, but there's, there's a caveat here that I've seen so many entrepreneurs and small business owners do like they talk about profit, um, excluding their owner's pay, excluding yeah. things like that. And don't do that, please. Like if you know that you need to make $4,000 a month, like put that before, I mean, depend on your, whether you're an LLC taxes an S corp, there's a lot of different ways in which you can pay yourself. But the general point here is if you know your business needs to pay you a certain amount, um, don't exclude that from what it counts as profitable because you actually don't have a profitable business. If the business can't pay you what it needs to pay and can't pay its other things. But I've seen people play a shell game with them. was like, my, I've got 40% profit. Then you ask them how much you pay yourself. It's like, well, it's kind of irregular or it's not quite paying me. So it's like, no, you don't have a profitable business yet. Right. Cause it's not paying you in that sense. Right. Um, totally. And so just be careful. And I know, talk to your bookkeeper, talk to your accountant about what's the best um, way to disperse payments to yourself. But when you're thinking about your business, always put in what it needs to pay you before you start talking about profit. Um, so you have a better view of whether your business is viable for the long term. Yeah. And this is just a, and this is just another good warning too, um, because this is where we see entrepreneurship turn into a little bit of a nightmare because as an entrepreneur, you have a certain responsibility around your finances and your taxes that you just don't have to take as an employee. And the, the kind of, uh, I guess stage where a business can get into a lot of trouble is when all of a sudden it's like, Oh, 
my business is making $4,000 a month and that's exactly what I need to get by. That's exactly it. And so you start taking $4,000 a month in distributions, but you're not saving anything for taxes because it's like, I need, I literally need 4,000 and I've already quit my job. So I need to spend all of this on my personal lifestyle. Well, then you get to the end of the year and your account's like, oh, here's your bill. And you're like, oh, well, I didn't save anything for taxes. That's where all of a sudden you're like, wow, I would have been better off just staying at a job because I wouldn't have all this, you know, this any liens or having to pay, make tax payments, try to catch up and stuff like that. So it's just such an important point and such an important responsibility as an entrepreneur is to not just be aware, like you said, Charlie, your, your profit, but how much of that profit you need to be saving for taxes too. Is there a good rule of thumb for that? Um, depending on your income level, you know, the percentage changes, but with our clients, it's like, uh, we're going to tell them to make sure they're saving anywhere from 30 to 40%. Uh, if your business is really small, then you might be able to get, and depending on the state you're in too, you know, a lot of our clients are in California or New York or places where they're going to tax the, the hell out of you. But, um, you know, if your business is smaller, even just putting 20 to 25% away is probably going to put you in a good position. Uh, one thing to just take into consideration though, if you have a spouse that makes a good amount of money, your tax bracket might be a little higher than that. But if you guys are like relying on your business and it's not making a whole lot of money right yet, then yeah, 20 to 25% of your profits, um, is going to be a pretty good, good bet. Yeah. And again, here's where it gets sticky, a service-based business where you're paying more in labor. When you get down to that bottom line, you might not have more than 10% left over to as actual profits. By the time you pay yourself, you pay your team, you pay everything else. So there might be different things to think about on those fronts than if you have a high profit, 60% sort of, you know, cause it's coming from profits and scalables that, that, um, in the way that we talked about. So, but still 20%. Yeah. And here's the easiest way to look at it. If your business made $100,000 in revenue and you had $50,000 in profit, regardless of how much distributions you took. So out of that $50,000 in profit, let's say you only took $40,000 to pay yourself. The $50,000 in profit is still what the IRS is going to care about from a tax perspective. Um, so that that's why your P&L is so important to make sure your accountants and your bookkeepers are taking advantage of every business expense you can get because we don't want your profitability to be unnecessarily low, but we do want to make sure we're capturing every expense so that your profit is 100% accurate because if you're um, – if we don't want the profit to be higher than it needs to be because we're missing, like, let's say some expense, you know, some uh, business write-offs, some tax write-offs, because then you're going to pay a little more in taxes than you really should be. And so ultimately, you know, making sure we have that accurate profit number every month, every year is really important for your tax bill because that's what the IRS cares about. Not how much you pay yourself, how much profit that your business has left over if you're a sole prop LLC or an S corp. Yeah. And this is um, just a minor point about December launches. Um, assuming your calendar year is the annual year, right? The challenge that you can sometimes face with December launches is if you have a really great launch in December and you carry over that cash, you get taxed from that cash, right? And so a good book, a good booking, good bookkeeping team and accounting team can help you with that. But there may be some advantages to bumping that particular launch back to January because you won't carry over that cash and have like exactly as you mentioned, if you have a launch that does extraordinarily well, right? And you generate an additional $70,000 profit that you're not going to spend by the end of the year, then that's what you're going to get taxed on, assuming your calendar year is um, at the end of December 31st. Um, so just be careful about that because I've had clients um, get caught up with that and realize, wait a second, if we would just back this December 29th launch back up three days, we wouldn't have generated that much profit and we wouldn't have the scary tax bill coming up and it would have made the same. Exactly. Price, right? Yeah. Cause the expenses just don't show up in the same year you made the revenue. So you don't get to write off the expenses until the next year. So that's, that's definitely a really good, really good point. Yeah. And so, um, again, work with an accountant bookkeeper. If you know you're doing a December launch, let them know about that, you know, and have run some calculations to see if there's a way that you can not carry over that cash. Maybe it's paying for services from, you know, your, your independent contractors in the same calendar year. There's, there's different things that you can do there that can make a big difference come, you know, March or April for the, of the following year. And I will say, I don't care if you're launching in December, January, whenever, just get an accountant. If you're many, even if you're spending money in your business and not making any money yet, um, you can find an accountant who will do a tax return for three to 500 bucks at the end of the year. Um, just have an accountant help you with that. Um, we really do not recommend doing your tax filings yourself when you run a business. 
because it just gets more complicated and you don't want to get yourself in trouble. Again, there's a certain responsibility you take as an entrepreneur. Take that responsibility seriously and just know that part of being an entrepreneur is meaning you're going to pay an accountant every year to help you with your taxes. Yeah, bake it into your cost structure. Exactly. Alrighty. So we've talked about a lot of things today, Parker. And again, I'm glad that we've got to jam and sort of nerd out on some things. But as the guest for today's episode, you get to leave our listeners with a challenge or an invitation. So based upon what we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? So I, I know everyone's in a different situation. So regardless of if you have a bookkeeper or if you don't have a bookkeeper, I would take a look at where you're at for the year. If you have a bookkeeper and you're not really looking at the reports, I would say schedule some time with your bookkeeper and go, how is January, February, March, or April, depending on when this episode comes out, how do those really look? And challenge yourself to really understand what's going on there and understand like when the revenue is coming in, what you're spending your money on and really how profitable your business is now. Like get those exact numbers now. Don't wait till the end of the year. If you don't have a bookkeeper, then I'd say, Go into your sales reports, uh, go into your bank account and maybe spend some time to think about what am I sort of spending on average every month in my business? What am I, um, how, how much revenue have I averaged so far for the year? It might take a little bit of work to do that without the bookkeeping background, but that information is so valuable and I don't, that's why I'm saying I don't really care how you have to do it. Just do it because part of the transformation our clients go through when they work with us at Evolve Finance is just all of a sudden seeing their numbers for the first time uh, in a way that's like very clear and very to the point and very easy to understand, it changes the way they think about their business. And again, I know we have a lot of creative people here who maybe don't think of themselves as business people, don't think of themselves as numbers people. As a dude with like long curly hair playing, you know, rock and roll in LA, who's now a finance dude, if I'm capable of doing it, not only for our own business, but for other people's businesses, you are too. And as I mentioned before, it's a money, you're running a money machine. And regardless of how awesome your offer is, how awesomely talented you are at what you do, if the if the numbers just aren't working out, you're doing yourself a disservice by not looking at them. So just Get comfortable with that or start to get comfortable with that as a first step. And honestly, it, it has the the power to start to change the way you really look at your business. Yeah, I'm going to piggyback on that real quick. Financial awareness is fuel for growth, right? So many times people want to hide from them. We're embarrassed about them. We feel ashamed. We don't like the numbers. We don't understand the numbers. But learning it is just like the fuel for growth that you need. And you wouldn't jump in a car and start a cross-country trip without paying attention to your fuel gauge. So don't do that in your business either. Um, totally agree. That's a great point, Charlie. Parker, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a blast. Hey, man, thank you for having me. All right. So you heard it from Parker. What can you do to dive into the numbers in your business and really figure out what's going on? We want to take the no shame, no blame perspective of it. Like It doesn't matter what you've been doing. Um, but what does matter is that you take action, you get aware of what's going on, and you use that to guide your decisions going forward. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.